16. Last week we introduced what our study will be for this quarter, and it's going to be a study of the life of David. And, and the reason we're focusing on the life of David is because he received one of, if not the greatest title in all of Scripture, when he was identified by God himself as a man after his own heart. The sense David is a man after God's own heart, shouldn't we see what it is about David that God saw? Because shouldn't we want to be men and women after God's own heart too? And that's kind of the premise of this entire study. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we spent our time last week and we, we uh, paid particular attention to the selection of David, particularly in comparison to uh, uh, the life Saul had lived up to that point. But tonight we get to the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and we arrive to find David's first political office. Now that might seem weird to say it that way, because we, we already know in the story that David's going to be king, but that's not the first royal office he takes on. Here at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to see that he receives a different assignment first, and it's that of a personal musician to the king, a royal musician, if you will. So let's, let's read this uh, section of Scripture from first, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 from verse 14 through verse 23. Join me in that, that reading right now. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now throughout his life, David wrote at least, at least 73 psalms. That's roughly half that are preserved for us today in the book of Psalms. In fact, David was so well known for his musical talents that at the end of his life, he is referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. That comes from 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 1. And not only did David write psalms, but he also organized the music ministry for the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, and he provided instruments for use by the musicians in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and verse 5. David's musical talents are evident in many facets of his career, but, but they may never have been more useful or more important than in these earliest days when he was a musician for King Saul. So today we're going to look at this one 
episode in the life of David, this role he has as a musician. We're going to see what we can learn from it, but first we need to tackle something theological. Because I know if you're like me, you're reading this text and you're seeing the statement that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit, or depending on what translation you read, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon him. So we're going to spend some time here for a little bit. It's going to be more focused on Saul than it is David, but we need to tackle this. So the one thing you need to notice is verse 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel chapter 16 are kind of the, the are, are very significant in the text of 1 Samuel. In verse 13, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David after he was anointed. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then in verse 14, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul. Now, one thing you need to know is that didn't happen because the Spirit of the Lord can only be with one person. That's not the issue. The issue is not that God's Spirit can only be connected to one individual. In fact, we can look at that language of the Spirit of the Lord, and it's applied to other people prior to Saul and David. For instance, you can go back into the book of Judges, and you'll see that Othniel in Judges chapter 3 and verse 10, Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and verse 34, Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 verse 29, and Samson on at least four different occasions is identified as having the Spirit of the Lord upon them. But what's interesting here is that we don't just have the arrival of the Lord's Spirit on David, we also have the departure of of the Lord's Spirit from Saul. Technically, Saul is the only individual from whom we are specifically told that the Spirit of the Lord departed from. It is assumed that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Samson after he told Delilah the secret to his strength because Judges chapter 16 and verse 20 says that when Samson awoke after his hair had been cut, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, we're going to assume that means that the Spirit of the Lord left him, because the Spirit of the Lord and the Lord are intricately entwined. But, this, but the text in Judges chapter 16 does not specifically say the Spirit of the Lord departed him. It's assumed. But not only are we informed that the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul, we're also told a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him there in verse 14. Later, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 10, we're told that this harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And then in chapter 19, verse 9, the text says that this harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. Now, the significant thing in all those verses that talk about this harmful or evil spirit in association with Saul is that every time it's identified as being from God or from the Lord. And that causes some problems for us, doesn't it? How do you reconcile the fact that this harmful or evil spirit is said to be from the Lord when the Lord is good? How can an evil spirit be from the Lord if the Lord is good? How can an evil spirit come upon Saul when the Lord has granted us free will? There's a lot of complexities to that uh, line of thinking and hopefully we can answer some of those tonight. Because when we look at this text, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. In order for us to grasp what is really meant here by the, the, this spirit from the Lord coming upon Saul, 
we need to understand that certain things matter. For instance, we need to understand that prepositions matter. Look at the text again. It's important to note the prepositions that are used in relation to the spirits, well, spirits mentioned in these verses, because they distinguish them from one another. You have the spirit of the Lord rushing upon David and departing Saul, and you have a harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting and or rushing upon Saul. One spirit is of the Lord, the other is from the Lord. So, That may not seem that significant. But not once does it say that the harmful spirit was of God, as if it was equated to God. The reason that matters is because it's not saying that God is the evil or harmful spirit that came upon Saul. It's not equating that spirit to the Lord like it's equating that spirit to the one that rushed upon David. And departed Saul. There is a distinction. One commentator pointed out that the narrator has taken great pains to describe this spirit as from Yahweh, but which is not to be associated as Yahweh. The spirit of Yahweh comes to bestow strength and power for service, while the evil spirit from Yahweh torments. The point is simply this the harmful spirit is distinct from the spirit of the Lord. They are Two different things. So prepositions matter when we're looking at this text. Also, figures of speech matter. Ancient Hebrew, like most languages, had a lot of figurative language, figures of speech involved in it. It frequently was the case that active verbs in Hebrew language were used to express not the doing of a thing, but the permission of the thing which the agent is said to do. Similarly, the figure of speech known as, I I always struggle to pronounce this, there's a figure of speech that occurs where the action is put for the declaration concerning it, or where what is said to be done is put for what is declared or permitted or foretold as to be done. I just quoted a lot of stuff right there, and it may not make a lot of sense to you, Here's what it boils down to. In Hebrew language, using a figure of speech, what the text is doing is is saying that it's taking God's permissiveness to allow something to happen and equating it to God actively doing it. So where the text says that this, this harmful or evil spirit is from the Lord, the way that sounds to us in English is that God caused it, that God made it happen. But in the Hebrew figure of speech, all it really means is that God permitted it to happen. So let's think broader scope. Do you remember in the book of Exodus, during the ten plagues, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? At times the text says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. At times the text says who? God. You ever had a problem with that? You ever wondered how is it that that God could operate against himself? It's that same figure of speech. That God's permitting the hardening of a heart, not actively causing it. But the way it translates into English is going to be 
is going to sound as if God is making it happen. So we need to understand that we're dealing with a, a translation. We're dealing with language here. And in the context of the Hebrew language, the idea is being portrayed that God is permitting or allowing the distressing spirit to come upon Saul. So it's not God directly sending upon Saul an evil spirit. Rather, it's him allowing it to happen in view of Saul's own propensity for stubborn disobedience. There's a great article. Uh, most of the content that I just quoted from or referenced comes from an article by Dave Miller at Apologetics Press. It's called, God, Did God Send an Evil Spirit Upon Saul? If you want to look at this a little bit further, that's a great resource for you to look at. He explains it a little bit more, and, and uh, it would be uh, more beneficial than listening to me to some degree. So my point is, figures of speech matter. The Hebrew figure of speech is saying that God's permitting something, but from our vantage point, it sounds like God is making it happen. The two are one and the same in Hebrew. Now, we also need to admit that definitions matter. The, t the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from tonight, keeps referring to this spirit as a harmful spirit. I've noted that there are other translations that refer to it as an evil spirit. Which one are you more comfortable with? Evil or harmful? With the idea that God is involved, we're going to feel a lot better about a harmful spirit than an evil spirit. The devil is the evil one. We talked about this on Sunday. God is the good one. And, and so nothing evil comes from God. He can't be tempted by evil. He can't be in the presence of evil. All of our theology about God says that evil can't be associated with him. So we can't have this term be evil. It's got to be something else. Now, that's not why translators have adopted different terminology. Actually, the word that is translated evil in this text can mean something else. It can mean distressing, as the New King James will use. It can mean injurious, as the NIV uses. It can mean bad or unhappy or sad of heart or mind. It can refer to a variety of negative attitudes common to wicked people and be extended to include the consequences of that kind of lifestyle. I just quoted from uh, that Dave Miller article again. My point is this. Even the term that we have translated evil in some of our English translations doesn't just mean wickedness. It can mean a lot of other negative things, like a harmful spirit or a distressing spirit. And so we shouldn't just look at this as a morally reprehensible spirit, because that's not what it's trying to convey specifically. It's trying to convey a spirit that comes upon Saul that, leads, that, that um, influences him into negative choices rather than positive ones. So, with that being said, we need to understand that it's not specifically referring to something that is morally not good. Also, the term translated spirit here can actually be translated air, or the vital principle of life, or of an animating force, of, or, or the rational mind where thinking and decision-making occurs, or, or as it will be uh, in other passages, it can be a reference to the Holy Spirit. It can even be a reference to a disposition of your mind or your attitude. And so since these terms here could be a reference not to a, a spirit that comes upon a person, uh, let me rephrase that, not to a um, force that comes upon a person, like a demon, it can simply be a reference to a bad attitude. And it's possible 
that once God's spirit left Saul, Saul developed his own evil spirit or his own bad attitude or his own ugly disposition that he manifested over and over again. So when we read this text and we consider what the, the Hebrew terms mean, it's possible that we're, in, we're understanding spirit and evil to be a more simplified, narrow context definition than they have to be because of our own understanding of those terms. So comment, one commentator said the, ter, um, said, the spirit from Yahweh represents a foreboding sense that Saul is moving inescapably towards self-annihilation. My point is simply this. God's involvement here can be simply him permitting something to happen, not protecting Saul anymore. The terminology of an evil spirit or a harmful spirit could just be the language of his own negative mindset and his own bad attitude manifesting itself. You separate yourself from God, what happens to your own mentality and attitude? You have to remember that's what Saul has done here. He has distanced himself from God by doing what? By disobedience. Last week we spent a good, spent a good bit of time examining his disobedience, particularly when it came to uh, his, his decision uh, to uh, circumvent S uh, Samuel in order to offer sacrifices that he was not authorized to offer, as well as his unwillingness to uh, stick to God's directives when he's ordered to annihilate the Amalekites. And he kind of went his own way with that. Sa Saul has proven himself to be a disobedient character, unwilling to surrender to God's instructions and God's plan and God's will, and that is now manifesting itself in a distance between him and God, represented in the fact that Samuel abandoned him, and that Samuel walked away from him. But there's one more thing here that we need to consider when we try to re reconcile the fact that this harmful spirit was from God, and that is we need to recognize the sovereignty of God. Saul was afflicted with an evil spirit as punishment for his insistent defiance of God's will. God has routinely in Scripture punished the wicked and disobedient. What did he do in Genesis chapter 6? When he recognized that the whole world was evil continually, what did he do? He sent a flood. What did he do in Genesis chapter 19 when he heard the cries against Sodom and Gomorrah? Did he not punish them? God has retained the right as sovereign God to punish wickedness. What will he do on the day of judgment? He will punish wickedness. He will punish disobedience. So Saul's evil spirit is a punishment to some degree for his defiance of God's will, as one commentator said. And his, we need to understand the reason we have multiple examples of Saul's failures is not because they, didn't they needed more stuff in the text of 1 Samuel to fill it up. It's because they wanted to show that this is a pattern of Saul's. It's not just a one-time mistake. You know, we when we studied the judges, we studied Jephthah, and we, we the ministers kind of had a discussion of, is Jephthah heroic or is he not? Because he, he, he uh, led uh, this great military victory, but then he made this silly vow 
that had some consequences for his daughter, regardless of what those consequences were. You look at Jephthah's life, he makes it into the, the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. It seems like that silly vow was a one-time mistake of his. King Saul is being presented as this habitual, disobedient character. We have this purposely put in our, the text of our scripture so that we know that this is a continual activity on Saul's part. And so we need to understand that, that God retains the right as, as sovereign God to punish evildoers, to punish the disobedient, to punish the wicked. But there's also an element of God's sovereignty here because God's going to use these circumstances to prep David. I mean, we haven't even made it that far in our text tonight yet. What we find out is that after the, the Spirit of the Lord comes on David and departs Saul and this harmful spirit comes on Saul, it's just part of God's providential plan to take a shepherd boy and put him in royal courts to prepare him for the day that he becomes king. You think about this, if, if David had, had entered the kingship with only his experience as a shepherd, he would have been very untrained for his role. I think Saul, part of his failures is because he wasn't properly equipped to take on such an important, powerful role. But David's going to get training. He, David's going to kind of get what Moses had. Remember, Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh. So by the time he's brought back by God to Egypt to lead the people out of slavery, he knows how to deal with the, the uh, royal entities that are there. He knows how to communicate. He knows how to conduct himself in the palace of Pharaoh. David's going to witness this for years because he's now in the court of Saul, and all this is part of God's providence involved. But also think about this. It's God's providence to give Saul some additional opportunities to change because he's putting someone in Saul's presence on a day-to-day -day basis with whom his spirit is at this point. Saul doesn't have God's spirit anymore, but David does. And he's got somebody in Saul's court who is a man after his own heart. He's got someone in Saul's presence who emulates what he wants. He's being merciful to Saul to some degree to have David there so that Saul can see what Saul should be. It gives Saul an opportunity to repent and change. But Saul doesn't see it that way. And so we need to look at this whole story with sovereignty in mind, that God is operating in a way that allowing the Spirit to come up on Saul is actually punishing his wickedness, but it's going to set in motion a series of events that could be for his benefit. He just doesn't see it. Because in David coming into his palace was the best thing for Saul. He just never knew it. With that being said, I'm going to wrap up our, our conversation here about this harmful spirit coming on Saul. There's... This is a rabbit hole we could spend a lot of time in, we could dive down, and maybe never fully wrap our minds around. But if you understand that this spirit is not associated with God specifically, the harmful, harmful spirit is not identified as being God himself, but something that God's going to allow because of this figure of speech. Or if you understand that evil spirit, the terms, are a little more narrow than they have to be, and if you understand that God's ultimately in control, and so he's going to punish, but he's going to give opportunity as well, then you can kind of wrap your mind around what's happening here. 
But that being said, I want to focus on the rest of the story, which is the remainder of the verses. But I want to do so by focusing on how it applies to us rather than just walking through the text. Because the whole goal of our class is for us to understand what makes David a man after God's own heart. And when we look at this story, I think three things really stand out. The first is this, that people after God's own heart seek to maintain fellowship with him. We've been focused on verse 13 and 14 because there we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It's important to note that the Spirit did not depart Saul because it came to David. It departed Saul because of his disobedience. We've already alluded to that, but remember when in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 13, when Saul had offered those sacrifices that he's not allowed to offer, Samuel shows up and says, you have done foolishly, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. When Saul failed to eradicate the Amalekites, when he spared King Agag, when he let the people keep the the best of the spoils of war, Samuel shows up, and by the end of 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 26, Samuel says, you have rejected the word of the Lord. You have not kept the command of the Lord. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Those are statements that Samuel said to King Saul. That's King Saul's problem. King Saul thinks he's above the rules. King Saul is unwilling to do what he's told to do. He wants to do what he wants to do. That's part of his problem. And because of that, the Lord rejects him. The spirit of the Lord departs from him. Not because David entered the scene, but because Saul exited his relationship with God through disobedience. All Saul had to do was obey God, and his fellowship with God would be maintained, and his kingdom and his lineage would be retained on the throne. And that relationship between obedience and the presence of God's Spirit did not go unnoticed by David. Saul, the the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul because of his disobedience. And David understood that. We are not going to dive into David's sin tonight, but we all know his sin with Bathsheba. And if you turn to Psalm chapter 51, that's his penitent prayer after his sin has been exposed to him. Psalm chapter 51, probably a psalm familiar to many of you, David's going to repent. In verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 51, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David acknowledges he sins. Then he asks God for forgiveness in verse 9 and 10 of Psalm 51. He said, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He asks for forgiveness. But here's what catches my attention. It's Psalm chapter 51 and verse 11. Psalm 51 verse 11. After asking for forgiveness, David says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Maybe David was especially concerned about being cast from God's presence and having his Holy Spirit taken away because David had witnessed firsthand those consequences in the life of Saul. 
So when David appealed for God to forgive him, he didn't ask God to keep his sin from being discovered. David didn't pray for the consequences to be avoided. David didn't say, take not this kingdom from me. Instead, he prayed for God's spirit not to depart from him because his chief was concern was to not be separated from God. He saw what that looked like in King Saul. And he knew that was a consequence he didn't want. See, to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, your chief concern in life must be to maintain your fellowship with the Father. Because a lack of fellowship with the Father, well, that's the very definition of hell. Jesus frequently associated hell with darkness. In two of his parables, the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the talents, and in one of his teaching moments, the interaction with the centurion who took him at his word, Jesus associated punishment with being cast into the outer darkness. That metaphor of darkness implies that hell will be a place of total isolation, a place of eternal loneliness, because you are permanently separated from God. That separation is depicted in the parable of the virgins when those unprepared women were denied access into the house with the bridegroom, Matthew chapter 25. It's also depicted in the parable of talents when the one talent servant was cast out of the master's presence, also Matthew chapter 25. And that separation is depicted in the parable of the sheep and the goats when the goats were told by the Son of Man to depart from me, Matthew 25. You see, throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light while his absence is consistently associated with darkness. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And John says, you know, if, to be in fellowship with the Lord, you have to be walking in what? Light. Here's my point. The emphasis of this metaphor of darkness is that hell is a place absent God. A place of complete separation from the author of life and the giver of all good gifts. In fact, Paul summarized this consequence in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 when he referred to hell as a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I think David understood that. I think David saw in Saul what hell on earth would look like because the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And for us to be men and women after God's own heart, the objective should be to do everything in our power to maintain that fellowship with Him. To do everything on our part to maintain that fellowship with Him. Because He's already done everything on His part to accomplish that. And so from David, we should learn the importance of maintaining fellowship with the Father. There is nothing more important than that. But I also think we can learn from David that people after God's own heart seek to be in the presence of other people after God's own heart. This actually has more to do with Saul than it does David. When this harmful spirit came upon Saul here in 1 Samuel chapter 16... We know it's a result of his own disobedience. But what's interesting is Saul can't even come up with a way to deal with it. 
Saul's aware that God no longer wanted him on the throne. Saul's even aware that God no longer viewed him or did not view him as a man after his own heart because Samuel had told him so. I'm certain that Saul's own failures frustrated him, but instead of making things right with God, it seems that Saul just simmered. You see, 1 Samuel 16 does indicate that God in some way allowed the distressing spirit to come up on Saul, but Saul made the decision to allow the distressing spirit to set up camp, to remain, to abide. And so Saul was not able to resolve his own dilemma. He's the one being troubled by the spirit, but he's not the one coming up with the solution. It's his servants, it's his attendants in verse 15 who diagnose his problem and who offer a suggestion to treat it. They decide Saul needs some music to soothe his soul. But I honestly don't think that music was the only objective, at least not in the mind of the individual who recommended David. Look at verse 18 again. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. Look at the resume of David that's presented by this one servant. He said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. That's the number one criteria that Saul gave, somebody who can play the music. Who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. But there's one more. And I think the last one is the most important qualification, the most important characteristic that this servant saw in David to suggest to Saul. And the Lord is with him. The servant acknowledged that David was skillful in playing music, but he also identified him as one whom the Lord is with. Maybe that was the detail that was most important. Maybe it was the objective of this servant to connect Saul an individual who is absent the Lord's Spirit, with David, an individual filled with the Lord's Spirit. In other words, maybe this servant knew that in order for Saul to conquer this distressing spirit, he needed to be around someone in whom the Lord's Spirit still dwelt. One commentator noted that the Lord is with him attribute puts David in the company with Isaac, Joseph, Joshua, and Samuel. Not everyone can it be said the Lord was with even in Scripture. That makes David stand out even more. And the fact, the very fact that this servant of Saul's tell that the Lord is with David fascinates me. How? How did he know the Lord was with David? How can you determine that? Anybody want to offer a suggestion? That's another thing. He's called a man of valor. A warrior, 
but he hadn't gone to war yet. Goliath is the next chapter. So that fascinates me too, but we'll circle back to that. <laughs> but success, okay. Somebody says something back here. Help Samuel choosing? But see, I wonder how many people knew about that. It was in Jesse's house. Only, only uh, um, David's brothers witnessed it, and Samuel was intentional about keeping it a secret because he was afraid Saul would find out and then come kill him. So, yes, the Lord chose him uh, via Samuel, but maybe that word hadn't gotten out yet. Alan. That's possible. Maybe those stories uh, of success over those ferocious creatures of the bear and the lion, uh, maybe that was known, that spread. And, and so it was known that the only way David could have done that is if the Lord was with him. Reputation. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, You will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to say, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. There had to be some fruit production in David's life, I think. Maybe it is the bear and lion success. Maybe there is some awareness of the anointing. Maybe he has had some military opportunities that we don't read about before the Goliath situation. Maybe he's just lived so extraordinarily that his reputation has manifested somewhere. We don't know. But, shouldn't we be people who are so good at producing healthy fruit that people can just look at us and go, yep, the Lord is with him, the Lord is with her. Shouldn't our fruit be so evident that we would be chosen just like David on that criteria alone? If we're going to be men and women after God's own heart, we do need to be cognizant of the fact that it needs to be recognizable that the Lord is with us. But returning to this particular subject, notice this. This servant wanted David in the presence of Saul. 
This servant wanted someone in whom the, with whom the Lord was still present in the presence of someone with whom the Lord had departed. And I think there is a lesson for us in that. That who you surround yourself with matters. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26, Solomon said, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. He's saying, be picky about who you befriend, because it's very easy for those who are wicked to lead you astray. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, Solomon said, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And his point there is that just as our friends have the ability to negatively influence us, they also have the ability to positively influence us. So we need to be picky about who we surround ourselves with. And of course, you've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, where bad company corrupts good morals. It couldn't be stated any plainer than that. The Bible consistently reminds us that the people with whom we surround ourselves will have a direct impact on the lives we live. If you surround yourself with the faithless, then your faith is going to be less than it could be. But if you surround yourself with the faithful, then you will have a greater possibility of being filled with faith. I can't remember where I heard that saying, but it stuck with me. And just like Saul, when we grow weak in faith, we need to surround ourselves with spirit-filled people. In fact, that's one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, God designed his people to exist in community, whether it be Israel or the church. Today, our church family is our spiritual community. It's designed so its members can assist each other in maintaining a right relationship with God. And so not only do we need to be able to be recognized as people with whom the Lord is, but we also need to understand that our faith is going to be affected by the people we surround ourselves with, so we should surround ourselves with spirit-filled people. One last thing I want to mention about David is that people after God's own heart seek to help other people be in fellowship with God. Here's what fascinates me about David. Look at verse 23 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. His contributions as a musician prove effective, at least at the start. Because in verse 23, we're told that whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And it's in this scenario, in this time frame, we're told Saul loved David. Now, that love is not going to be around forever. In fact, Saul appreciates David so much and finds David so beneficial that he asks for David to be part of his royal court now. And, and, and so David is permanently with Saul. He even gets upgraded to armor-bearer. Now, he's not the only armor-bearer Saul ever has, but one commentator made the point that the reason Saul probably gave him that role as well is so that David would always be around him, so that David would always be there whenever this harmful spirit came upon Saul, even if he's out in the middle uh, of uh, battle lines, David would be there to start soothing him as soon as possible. David is a benefit to Saul, and Saul initially recognizes that. Saul, we're told, loved David. And whenever David played this instrument, it made Saul well. 
The last time David plays for King Saul appears in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10 and 11. It's after the slaying of Goliath. It's after the people started praising David for killing more than Saul had ever killed. And that celebration, that recognition, and that honor of David above Saul got to Saul. And there in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 11, we learn that Saul attempted to kill David. Not once, but twice in the same sitting. Apparently Saul flung his spear at David. David managed to get away. But apparently David came back and played his harp after Saul attempted to kill him. So that Saul attempted a second time. Now I want you to think about that. If you were David, and the king just tried to kill you, would you return to keep playing your instrument? Or would you hightail it out of there? I think this says something about the character of David. I think this tells us that David cared about Saul. I think it tells us that David didn't want to give up on Saul just yet. I think David recognized that he had been successful in combating that distressing, harmful spirit that Saul had been dealing with and that he wanted to continue helping Saul. Maybe if he could just get back in there and play a different song or a different chord, it would soothe Saul again. It's as though David is wanting to give Saul that second chance. He didn't want to give up on Saul because he knew in the past he had saved Saul. And it makes me think that David understood Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 where we're instructed to bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. In that passage... Paul said, those who are spiritual are instructed to restore those who are caught in any transgression. And then it gets into that bear one another's burdens passage. I think David looked at Saul and still thought he could rescue Saul. He could still help Saul. He didn't want to give up on Saul just yet. As man and woman after God's own heart, we need to understand that our fellowship with the Lord is the most important thing, but we need to also recognize that we have an ambassadorial role to play to help other people be in correct fellowship with the Lord. David was willing to risk his life to help Saul have that fellowship. Are you willing to risk your life to help lost souls find that fellowship? Because there are many men in the New Testament who were. We have a responsibility to help other people be in fellowship with God. How serious do we take that responsibility? See, I think there's a lot we can learn from David and I think we're just 
peeling back the first layer of why God looked at him and said, that's a man after my own heart. There's so much more we could pull out of this one small event, this one small story. But in it, we start to see that David is one of a kind. And hopefully, you and I will want to be like him. Not because he's our Savior, but because he reflected a heart of our God. Let's close out this evening with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for giving us an example like David to show us the heart you want us to have. And help us to continue to unpack that. But most of all, Lord, help us, help us to pursue fellowship with you always. Help us to understand the consequences that come with not maintaining fellowship with you. Help us to appreciate what you've done on your side to make that fellowship possible. And Lord, help us to understand when we need to be around people who will build us up. Help us to recognize those people who tear us down. Help us to recognize when we're at our, our weakest and we need spiritual strength from others. Help us to be willing to seek that out and to admit that need. And Lord, help us to take seriously our role, our role at leading others to you, our role at helping them find fellowship with you through the blood of your Son. Help us to be willing to take that risk because souls depend on it. Lord, help us to have your heart. It's through the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer. Amen.